0: It is a joy and a privilege to be with you this evening, to have the opportunity to continue in our survey of the biblical books in our Route 66 series. And as Brandon mentioned earlier, tonight we have the privilege of entering into the wisdom literature in the book of Job. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to turn with me to the first chapter of Job. Now before we embark upon our study of the contents of this book, I want to first introduce you to a man of antiquity. And that man's name is Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford was a Scottish divine who lived during the 17th century. And in the year 1627, Rutherford took the call to pastor at a small church parish in Anwar, Scotland. You can see there even the the size of that church. It was a beloved small congregation in the hillsides of Scotland. And though Rutherford was an immense blessing to the church there and was used mightily by God during that time, his years at Anwath were fraught with affliction. In the year 1630, his wife died from a chronic and tragic bout that she had been suffering with for 13 months. And outside of the exception of a single daughter, every single one of the children that were born to Rutherford and his wife perished while they were young. It was also during these years at Anwath that Rutherford was on his deathbed fighting a chronic illness. And in the year 1635, within the span of five years, the, his mom, whom he adored and had brought to live with him and his wife, also died. If that wasn't bad enough, in the year 1636... Rutherford was stripped of his ministerial position and was banned from preaching in the land of Scotland because he had resisted the inroads of Arminian doctrine into the Scottish churches. So how did Rutherford respond to this severe onslaught of affliction and suffering? Listen to the words of Rutherford himself. Rutherford said, when I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Elsewhere, Rutherford says, the school of suffering now is a preparation for the king's higher house. You see, Rutherford's response to suffering and affliction in these short years of his ministry at Anwath is critical for us to understand and embrace because it is a graphic portrait and portrayal of the truth that is so vividly displayed in the pages of Job. Let me ask you, when you are instructed in the school of suffering, how do you respond? The book of Job serves to teach us that we're not to question or not to demand answers from God in the midst of affliction and suffering, but rather the book of Job serves to teach us that we are to implicitly trust the gracious and good sovereign. We are to trust him in both his attributes and his actions, in his words and his works. So, how do you respond when affliction comes knocking on your door? when you are pressed into the furnace of affliction, what is your response? Well, the book of Job serves to teach us the proper response, and I hope that we'll see that this evening. And the book of Job progresses through four scenes that teach us that the righteous shall suffer by faith in the sovereign God. Four scenes that we're gonna look at tonight that teach us that the righteous, the believer, is to suffer by faith in the sovereign God. But prior to entering into our study of the book of Job, I wanna provide three scriptural anchor points to fixate your thoughts and your mind, even as we traverse over our study of the contents. One from the law, one from the prophets, one from the Psalms. First one, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to Yahweh, but the things that he has revealed belong to us and our sons forever. Likewise, Daniel four thirty five says that all the inhabitants of the earth are as counted as nothing before him, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, "What have you done?" And from the Psalms, Psalm one fifteen verse three, our God is in the heavens; he does whatever he pleases. I encourage you to keep these scriptural verses as anchor points tonight as we engage with the contents of the book of Job. But without further delay, let's look at the four scenes of Job together. You can outline it this way. The first scene that we're introduced to in the book is Satan's accusation and Job's affliction. Satan's accusation and Job's affliction. We see this in the first two chapters of the book of Job. And it's in these chapters that the groundwork is laid for the rest of the book, Right at the outset, in verse 1 of chapter 1, we're introduced to this man. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And I want you to understand, I want you to see from verse 1 that the historicity, the historical nature of the character of Job is assumed. You see, Job is not a mystical figure or a mythical figure. He's not a figure that serves just merely as a representative of all who will suffer after him, but rather this is a real man, flesh and bones living in a real place at a real time. And this man is described by our narrator in verse one as being blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And this isn't just the narrator's conclusion of the character of Job. Let your eyes glance down to verse eight. And this is, this is Yahweh's affirmation of Job's character. It says that there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And this preliminary assessment of the character of Job is absolutely essential as we navigate and work our way throughout the book of Job. I love what William Henry Green, who was a Princetonian scholar, wrote concerning the character of Job. This is what epitomized the character of Job, he said. He set the will of God before him as his standard, the glory of God as his end, and the approbation or the approval of God as his highest reward. Job was a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. But not only was Job a righteous fearer of Yahweh, we learn here in the first five verses that he was also an abundantly blessed man. Look at verses two through three. We read this, that he had seven sons and three daughters. They were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the East. It's in these first five verses that we're introduced to the character of Job, the, the main character that we will engage with throughout our study of the book of Job. And it's in these verses that we see the, of, his, of his piety, but also of his prosperity, of his blamelessness and also his blessedness, of his godliness along with his greatness, But in verse six, the narrative shifts from the earthly sphere to the heavenlies. The narrator instructs us that Satan appeared before the presence of the Lord. The accuser of the brethren appears before the sovereign. And I want you to notice again from verse eight, who it is that presents Job before Satan. Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No, this doesn't mean that God isn't loving or no, this doesn't mean that he's not good. You see, the answer that we need to see is found in the latter half of the verse of his affirmation of Job's character. You see, God is the omniscient one, the one who knows the end from the beginning, the one who knows and tests the hearts of men and he knew exactly what was in Job's heart. Well, true to nature, the accuser of the brethren begins slinging accusations at the righteous servant. Look at verse nine. Satan answered the Lord, does Job not fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. You see, in this passage, Satan accuses Job of merely worshiping God for what he receives in return, not merely worshiping God for who he is and his, his character, his goodness, and his, his loving kindness. Satan's hypothesis is, if God, if you take away all his material possessions, if you strip them from him, he will turn his back on you and will curse you to your face. So what's the Lord's response in verse 12? He says, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh gives authority. He gives, he gives permission to the adversary, to Satan, to afflict Job. But even in this verse, notice the restraints that are placed upon the adversary. Let this be a reminder to paraphrase Luther that the devil is God's devil. The same God who commands the waves of the sea, thus far you shall come and no further, is the same God who says to the adversary, thus far you may go and no further. Well, verses 13 through 19 recount in vivid and graphic detail the the assaults of affliction that come pouring and crashing down upon our righteous friend Job. For the sake of time I'm not going to read it, but you have to, you have to see a couple of things that I want to draw out. Look at verse 13. Notice the phrase "on the day. Everything that transpires in the course of Job's affliction outlined here in these verses occurred within the single confines, Of a single day. And I also want you to notice from this section the repeated phrases that we have. Notice when it says three times while he was still speaking, that is a messenger, another also came and said and delivered this news of of greater tragedy, greater affliction, ultimately climaxing in the death of his ten children. I mean, Job didn't have room to catch his breath. He didn't have room to process one affliction before the next came cascading over his soul. You've heard the saying, undoubtedly, when it rains, it pours. And in the case of our friend Job, a monsoon was wreaking havoc upon his happy estate. Job has been plunged into the furnace of affliction. How will he respond? Will he curse God as Satan had conjectured? Will he turn his back on God? You know, oftentimes a change in circumstances can have a dramatic impact on one's outlook or their disposition. So will this be the case for Job? Well, look with me at verses 20 through 22. Verse 20 reads, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job prostrates himself in the dust of the earth and he worships, he worships. And I must ask you, as I've asked myself throughout this week, is that my immediate response when affliction strikes? To worship, not to to disregard the severity of the suffering, not to overlook it, not to be stoic in the face of it, to acknowledge it head on and worship. To acknowledge the sovereignty of God over everything that I have, possessions, family, you name it. It's with this statement in verse 21 that Job affirms the sovereignty of God in his life and over all of his possessions. And this is the ultimate truth for what it means to suffer by faith. A deep, abiding assurance in the good sovereignty of our gracious God. To echo in unison with the hymn, whatever my God ordains is right. Right. His holy will abideth. But Job's hour of testing has not ceased. We turn the page to chapter two and we are introduced to another heavenly dialogue. The Lord affirms Job's righteous character again. He says, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. And he holds fast to his integrity, although you have incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And then Satan launches into these accusations claiming that if Job's physical health was stripped of him, then he would curse God. Okay, God, you got me on the first one. But if you take away his physical health, if you allow me to inflict him in his physical well-being, he will turn and he will curse you. And just as very similar to the first occasion, God says that you may put forth your hand on him, but you must preserve his life. And I love what Green says again. I love what he says about the restraint of God here. He says that the tempter is limited and restrained by God's almighty guardian and friend. What truth. What truth. In verses 7-7, Through eight, we see the outworking of this. Satan afflicts the very physical well-being of Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And if this wasn't bad enough, let your eyes glance down to verse nine. Job's wife becomes a source of affliction, encouraging him, enticing him to curse God and die. Job, surely that would be better for you than suffering this affliction. Just curse God, get it over with. And notice Job's response in verse 10. Job's response in verse 10. He says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? You know, it's oftentimes easier to be advocates. It's it's easier to be proponents. It's it's easier to be strong, steadfast believers in God's sovereignty when we're showering in blessings. but are we strongly committed to the sovereignty of God when we're in the cellar of affliction? Is our theology mutable? Is it morphing? Is it changed by the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Or is it steadfast, unmovable, standing upon the everlasting rock of the truth of God's sovereignty as depicted, as declared in the scriptures? Solomon and Ecclesiastes, a very similar verse to verse 10 says this. He says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. Well, it's in verses 11 through 13 that we're introduced to another cast of characters. It's in these verses that Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come traveling from afar to mourn with him, to sympathize with him. And the text says that they sat with him without speaking a single word for seven days. And the text says it was because his pain was great. They sat there. They comforted him with their presence. Now it must be stated at this point that Job and his three friends were not privy to the heavenly dialogue that we have been allowed to view this, this evening in chapters one through two. And it's based upon an ignorance of the events that transpired in chapters one through two by which the rest of the book is laid out. As chapter two closes, the curtain closes of the first scene highlighting the immense suffering and affliction of Job. But as the curtain closes on the first scene, the second scene begins to unfold, which I've titled the advisor's counsel in Job's contention. This ranges from chapter three through chapter 37 and the bulk of the contents of the book are contained in these chapters. It's in these chapters that we hear from Job's three friends. They begin to speak and they begin to seek to pinpoint the exact reason or cause behind Job's suffering. And it's in these chapters that Job responds to his friends, asserting and advocating for his his overall innocence and integrity. First, I want to provide for you the structure of this section of the book. This section of the book largely unfolds with three movements or three cycles of dialogues as the three friends offer their input and Job responds. Following that, we receive an extended monologue in chapters 27 through 31 where we have that beautiful chapter right in the middle in chapter 28 of where the fear of Yahweh, that is wisdom and that God knows wisdom. God is the source of wisdom. Following Job's account and monologue in chapters 27 through 31, we hear from another counselor, another counselor, Friend, presumably of the three friends of Job, Elihu, in chapters 32 through 37, where he argues against Job's self-righteousness and his justifying himself before God. So that's the structure of the extended section, but what about the arguments of the friends? What wisdom do they have to offer concerning the specifics behind Job's affliction? What specifically do they criticize in the character of Job. Mark Dever sums up the argument of these friends in the following way. He does this pretty wittily. He says, Job, what has happened to you is really bad. You must have sinned in the most extraordinary way because God is just and he punishes sin. And though you deny having sinned, we know you must have. There can be no other explanation. And while this this encapsulation of the argument of the friends covers it in broad brush strokes. There's very nuances to the arguments of the friends that I want to disclose to you this evening. You see, as you walk through these chapters, you get the sense that these men have a high view of God, that they generally possess a solid theology. But it's in the application of that theology specifically to the case of Job in which they erred. Turn with me in your Bible to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, I want you to see God's assessment of the friend's counsel before we dig into the specifics. Look at verse seven in chapter 42. The Lord says to Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is right. God condemns these three friends because they presented themselves as mouthpieces for God, offering counsel and wisdom and advice to Job behind the reality of his suffering. They claim to speak on behalf of God. And God says, what you have spoken of me is not right. And God reproves these fault finders for their flawed rationale and reasonings and counsel. So let's look at the individual arguments together. Turn back with me to Job chapter 4. Job chapter four, following a lament by Job in chapter three, these dialogues commence. And we hear first from Eliphaz, who was presumably the oldest of the three friends because he speaks first in the chronology chronology of this dialogue. And Eliphaz's argument was largely based upon personal experience. And I want you to see this from chapter four. Look at verses seven and eight. Verses seven and eight, these are the words of Eliphaz. He says, Remember now who has ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Notice the grounds of Eliphaz's argumentation. It is according to what I have seen. And now the principle that he expounds here is, axiomatic for sure. It's taught in the scriptures. It's it's axiomatic in the sense that it's a generally accepted truth. It's the principle of you reap what you sow. The Proverbs are consistent with this teaching and even Paul in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, God cannot be mocked, do not be deceived. For that which a man sows, that he will reap. But Eliphaz errs in applying this principle to Job's case. He wasn't privy to the information that we have in chapters one and two. Here's the argument of Eliphaz he says, Job, mankind in general is sinful. And as a byproduct of sin comes suffering. And because you are suffering from what I have seen with my own eyes under the sun, you must have sinned. That's the logic of Eliphaz's argument. but what about the second counselor in this series of disputations? What about Bildad? Well, turn with me to chapter eight. Job chapter eight. What counsel does Bildad have to offer to Job? Look at verse eight and verse nine. He says, please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. So the source of authority for Bildad's argument, again, applying the same principle of you reap what you sow, you're suffering, therefore you're sinning, is related to his traditions, what he has received from the ancients of the past generations. Bildad appeals to a long succession of godly ancestors that testified that the assertion that they were offering that Job must have been sinning because he was suffering was valid. Again, we see the flawed methodology of having a source of argumentation from anything outside of the Theopneustos, God-breathed scriptures. Personal experience can be helpful. Traditions can be helpful, but they are not to be the magisterium in ruling over the scriptures. Is the third friend any different? What about Zophar? What does he bring to the table in offering counsel to the suffering Job? Well, Zophar is by far the strongest in his condemnation of Job, holding as a basis of his argumentation, his religious convictions, holding them with a tight fist. He also maintains the the retribution theology, if you will, And this is the same theology that was adopted by Jews in the first century. And this is evidenced by the disciples in an encounter that occurs in John chapter 9. Listen to the words of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In the same way that God had ordained and orchestrated the personal affliction of this blind man in John chapter nine for the purpose of the magnification of his glory, the greater exaltation of his works. In that same fashion, so too God ordained the affliction of Job for the greater exaltation of his glory as his servant remained faithful to him despite severe trials and suffering. Despite the advisor's counsel, Job still contended for his integrity. Listen to a brief sampling of passages. This is from Job 27.6. Job says, I hold fast my righteousness and I will not let it go. Later in Job 31 verses five through six, says, if I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened after deceit. Let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. He welcomes with scrutiny this divine underscoring or this divine searching of his heart. And it's intertwined with Job's assertions of his integrity and innocence that we also see this theme that is woven throughout the tapestry of the book of Job. And that is Job's hope in a future vindication. In Job chapter 13, verse 18, we read this from the words of Job. He says, behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. And the, probably the most popular verses from this entire book, from Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 26, Job says, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. This is the hope of the righteous, the hope of future vindication. Though he might be slayed in this life, Job thirteen fifteen. The believer knows that his redeemer lives. And who is this redeemer? There's been many arguments presented forward, but within the full scope of redemptive revelation, this redeemer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This redeemer is the umpire between God and man, Job 9.33. This redeemer is the only and exclusive mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. And this redeemer is Job's advocate on high, in his witness in heaven, Job 16, 19. And we must pause in our study. And I must ask you this evening to per- personally take introspection of your own heart. Do you know this Redeemer? Wes has walked us through the last four weeks the need for reconciliation. That by nature, we are estranged. By nature, we are alienated from God. We're hostile and engaged in evil deeds and darkness. There is nothing that the unregenerate man can do to please God. Romans 8, 7 says it's impossible. He's not even able to. We need one to bridge the gap who can put his hand on the one side side and the other of the creator and the creation divide. We need one who was fully God so that he could perfectly obey the law for there is no man who does not sin, 1 Kings eight forty six. We need one who is perfectly man, who was born under the law so that he could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, Galatians 4, Romans 8. We need this mediator, this redeemer. And friend, I must ask you this evening, do you know him? Personally, do you know him? This redeemer who can placate, who can satisfy the justice of God. This redeemer who through the shedding of his blood can bring about the forgiveness of your sins. This all lovely, all glorious, magnificent, matchless redeemer and savior, can you say as for me? As for me, I know my redeemer lives. Job's contention throughout these chapters was that he was innocent of presumptuous large sins that he was accused of by his counselors and that God would ultimately vindicate him and vindicate his cause. And the scene closes On our second, or the the curtain closes on our second scene of the advisor's counsel and Job's contention. But that brings us and ushers us to a third scene, which is God's speech and Job's silence. This runs from chapters 38 through 41. God's speech and Job's silence. Job had requested a hearing before God. And in chapters 38 through 41, God provides exactly what Job had asked for. Plot twist. Except Job was brought to deafening silence as God issues a series of questions that demonstrate his grandeur, his greatness, his sovereignty. In Job's creatureliness, his finitude, Thomas Schreiner comments all of these questions that are contained in chapters 38 through 41. They're designed to show Job his finitude and his smallness. The sovereign Lord created and runs the world. Job as a mere creature scarcely understands the world, nor does he ordain what happens, end quote. Turn with me to chapter 38 and look with me specifically at verse Three. God challenges Job. He says, now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. How the turntables have turned to borrow an office phrase. Instead of the judge sitting in judgment of the creature, Job is brought to the witness stand. If you know so much, Job instruct me. Surely you know. Look at verse 4 as this series of rhetorical questions begins. God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Drop down to verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Look later at verse 33. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? or fix their rule over the earth? And as we progress to chapter 40, God challenges Job to respond. Chapter 40, verse two, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. But notice the response of Job in chapter 40, verse four. Job says, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Class is in session and the lesson is being learned. The pupil of suffering is not to demand a response from the sovereign God as to the cause of his affliction." But rather he is to completely trust in the faithful creator, the sovereign God. And it's God's omnipotence and his sovereignty that is just clearly and vividly and graphically portrayed in these chapters. He is the one who governs over the natural world and the animal world. Now it must be mentioned at this juncture that Job has never provided an exact explanation behind his sufferings. He doesn't say, Job, I know you have been through a lot, my friend, but you see, there was something that occurred within the confines of heaven that you were unaware to, and that is the reason, the rationale behind your suffering. He doesn't do that. The lesson that is learned in these chapters is that God does what God does because God is who God is. Let me rewind that statement. I would encourage you to memorize this statement. God does what God does because God is who God is. And that ushers us into the final scene of the book of Job. The fourth scene, which is contained within the the 42nd chapter, which is Job's repentance and restoration. Job's repentance and restoration. How must one respond when he is brought to the courtroom of heaven and instructed in such heavenly verities? God has spoken. His voice has resounded with such glorious truths. And now Job responds in these first six verses of chapter 42. Job answered, Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse three, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job affirms the sovereign will of God, that his purposes could not be thwarted and that God is righteous and he is good in his dealings with mankind. Job affirms that he has spoken presumptuously. He has spoken of things that he did not fully understand, leading him in verse 6 to repent, to retract in dust and ashes. In essence, the the repentance of Job can be summarized by the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9 Your ways are higher than my ways, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so are the Lord's ways higher than man's ways and his thoughts than your thoughts. God's wisdom in ways far surpass the finite comprehension of the creature, the creature Job. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. It's in verses 10 through 16 that the fortunes of Job are restored twofold, you can see that played out along with the restoration of 10 children. So what is the outcome of God's dealings with Job? Well, let me allow the inspired author to provide the answer. Listen to James chapter 5, verse 11. James writes this. He says, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of Compassion and is merciful. So what is the outcome of Yahweh's dealings with Job? That he is compassionate. That he is merciful. That he is righteous. That he is the good and gracious king of heaven who ordains all things that come to pass. Now we have made haste through 42 chapters of the book of Job. We mentioned that the explicit purpose of the book of Job was to teach us that the proper response of the believer is not to question or speculate concerning the whys and the wherefores of your suffering. But rather it is to trust the gracious and the good and the loving God who causes all things, including affliction and suffering, to work out for your good in his glory. But before we conclude our study tonight, I want to provide a biblical perspective of what it practically looks like to trust in the sovereign God in the midst of affliction. We know that God is sovereign. We know that there is nothing that happens outside of his purview. We know that God ordains affliction. We may not be able to always put our finger upon the pulse of the whys of our suffering or the whys of our affliction, but I want to provide some God-ordained purposes in God's design of affliction in the life of the believer. I want us to cultivate a biblical perspective together on suffering and affliction. I want you to saturate your heart and your mind with these God-ordained purposes so that by God's grace and by his spirit, you will be prepared that when he has tested you, you shall come forth as gold. Job 23.10. So let's jump into these purposes together. First purpose is that God ordains all affliction in the life of the believer for their spiritual good and his greater glory. You know, Romans eight twenty eight. you know, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We must adopt the mindset that all things, not some things, not blessings merely, but all things work together for our good and God's greater glory. I love what William Bridge says when he penned these words. He says, all of the affliction of the saints are but their medicine, prescribed and given them by the hand of their father. William Cooper in the beloved hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way in the fourth line says these words. Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Having and adopting and cultivating this biblical mindset will allow us to be as Spurgeon who said, I have learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. Second God-ordained purpose behind affliction is that God ordains affliction to drive us to take complete refuge in him. When the citadel of our human fortitude is collapsed, where we have no other repose, no other refuge, we cast ourselves upon God. The psalmist in Psalm 18 says in verse six, in my distress, I called upon Yahweh. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. But why? So that we would trust in God who raises the dead. God ordains affliction to drive us to take complete refuge in him. A third God-ordained purpose in affliction is that he does so to wean our heart from an incessant love of this passing away world. John, his epistle says, do not love the world or the things of the world. The things of this world are passing away. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and and steal. John Bunyan writes this. He says, if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass the sentence of death upon everything that could properly be called a thing of this life not just the trinkets, not just the gadgets, not just the electronics, not just those things, but even on those good blessings, even on your family, your children, my health, my enjoyments, and count them all as dead to me and myself to them. Fourthly, God ordains affliction to cause us to fixate our hope upon glory in the world to come. And let me just say, I know we're rushing through these, these slides will be offered to you. they'll be on the countryside website. I would encourage you to take those and keep these as a, as a constant before your eyes. For the question is not if. The question is when affliction comes knocking on your door. But the fourth one you see there is it is causes us to fixate our hope upon glory in the world to come. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3:20. We're merely pilgrims and sojourners on this earth looking for a city whose builder and architect is God Hebrews 11:10 It was Jonathan Edwards who stated Lord stamp eternity upon my eyeballs Would that be the prayer of my heart and your heart as well Fifthly God ordains affliction to prepare us to comfort others in affliction God ordains affliction to prepare us to comfort others in affliction 2 Corinthians 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. As we experience suffering and affliction, we are that much more equipped to minister the comfort of God to other afflicted souls. Sixthly, God ordains affliction to produce in us Christian virtues. You can take down these references. You're undoubtedly familiar with them. Romans 5, 3 through 4, and James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not that you consider the trials necessarily joyous, but you consider the result of those trials, a steadfast character, endurance. Seventhly, God ordains affliction to purge us from sin and increase our hatred of sin. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11 says that God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. One Puritan said that afflictions are God's furnaces to purge out the dross of our sins, God's files to pare off our spiritual rust, God's fans to winnow out our chaff. And finally, not lastly, but finally, God ordains affliction to heighten the gloriousness of future glory. Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us by molding and by fashioning your thinking into conformity with these God-ordained purposes, by keeping these God-ordained purposes before your eyes when your hour of testing comes. And it will come. By God's grace and by the enabling power of his spirits, you will be able to entrust yourself to a faithful creator who is absolutely loving and infinitely good. When you are in the cellar of affliction, these God-ordained purposes must be the choicest wines that you drink from. One of the most beloved hymns in the history of the Christian church is, It Is Well With My Soul. The author of that hymn was Horatio Spafford. And Horatio was a lawyer in Chicago, and he was also a lay elder in his Presbyterian church. It was in the year 1871 that he lost a vast amount of his wealth through the Great Chicago Fire, and shortly thereafter, his only son died from a tragic bout of pneumonia. Shortly thereafter, he and his family were set to sail to Europe, but because of some business dealings, he had to stay behind in Chicago, so he sent his family on ahead, it was, on the year, it was on the date, November 22, 1873, when the ship that Horatio's wife and daughters were on was struck by an English vessel. It was within 12 minutes that the entirety of the ship sank along with those passengers who were on board. Horatio received a cable shortly thereafter from his wife in Wales with two words. And those two words says, saved alone. Horatio had lost all four of his daughters in that single sinking of that ship. And so Horatio made haste to to cross the Atlantic to get to his wife. And the history of the hymn goes that he pinned the words to that beloved hymn, it is well with my soul, as he crossed the, the supposed spot that the ship went down. And I want to read for us the first two verses of that hymn. I'm not going to sing it. I don't have the voice of Jonathan. But I will read it. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot. Thou hast taught me to say. It is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet. Though trial should come. Let this blessed assurance control. That Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. And has shed his own blood for my soul. when we are pressed into the cellar of affliction, when we are plunged into the furnace of affliction, may we, by God's grace, trust in his attributes and his actions, in his works and his words. May God enable us by his grace to be able to respond in this manner, the same manner that we see with Job. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are confronted with such sobering truths. God, we're reminded that we live in a cursed world, in a Genesis 3 fallen world in which there is sickness and sin and illness and plagues and death. But God, we're also reminded that you are the one who in the person and the work of Christ has undid the deeds of the devil. Lord, there's coming a day in which there will be no more sickness, no illness, no affliction, no boils from head to toe, no loss of children, no loss of servants, no loss of possessions, no anything besides basking in the glorious presence of our great God and King. Oh, Lord, make haste with that day. We pray alongside John. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.